Well, good morning again. It is great to have you with us. And as I announced last Sunday, this Sunday we are going to tackle the question, is God good? A reminder that up on the screen, uh, in a moment's time, you will see the number that you can text through your Q&A, your questions, and we will have a time at the end to go through that. The reason why we're tackling this question, this week it's, is God good? Next Sunday, I want to actually look at the topic of the problem of pain, is because this subject came up in a couple of completely unrelated conversations that I had uh, about two or three weeks ago. And the question that came up was, is God good? And so there was a bit of discussion around that for a while. Now, in terms of where we're going this morning with this, there's no set Bible passage. I'm just going to look briefly at three specific scriptures this morning. So I invite you, if you've got your Bibles or reading devices, uh, they're with you at this moment, that you open them, and you might like to go firstly to Psalm 34 as we kick this topic off. Now, in the light of, say, an exa- or as an example, what happened in Florida about 10 days ago with the collapse of that building and the lives of several people have tragically been lost, when issues like that come up or when situations like that take place, the question inevitably arises for many people about God. And what is questioned is, if God is all-powerful, then why didn't he stop that from happening? Why wouldn't God intervene? Because he is all-powerful, God being God, then he should be able to stop that disaster from happening. The second question that arises as well, the one we're dealing with today is, if God is good, why would he allow that to happen? And why does God allow all the other awful things that take place in the world, whether they be personal or whether they be on a larger scale that we experience as human beings. If God is good, then why does he allow that? And it inevitably leads to three conclusions. So as people wrestle with this question, and I want you to know up front this morning that it's not wrong to ask this question, okay? So that's the reason why we're tackling it. People have asked the question, And I want to say to you, it's okay to ask the question. However, when we ask the question, what I'm also, what I'm asking you of you this morning is to consider the perspective that I will bring. Because no doubt you have your own personal perspective. You will have been influenced by the perspective of others. I'm seeking to influence you with my perspective this morning. All I'm asking is that you will consider it and work it through and give due consideration to the arguments and points that will be raised this morning. But inevitably, we draw three conclusions. The first is that we say, if God is good, then he would want his creation or his creatures, us, to be happy. Secondly, the conclusion we come to is that if God is all-powerful, then he could make that happen. So if God is good, he would want us to be happy. Secondly, if he is all-powerful as the Bible says he is, then he would be able to make us happy. But here's the problem, and this is the third conclusion. The problem is that we, his creatures, are not happy. Therefore, God is not good and he's not all-powerful because he can't do what he wants to do. So the question before us this morning is this, is God good? And right from the outset, this is what I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest to you that perhaps we might be looking at the answer to this question from the wrong perspective. When we draw those conclusions, when we determine that God 
is not good and not all-powerful because we are not happy and we experience suffering. I want to suggest to you that maybe we need to actually look at this from God's perspective this morning. That's the perspective that I want to bring. I am not here to try and defend God this morning. I want you to know that. God does not need to be defended by me. But what I want to do is to bring his perspective because when this discussion comes up, I do get a little frustrated at some of the comments that are made or conclusions that are drawn without actually considering all the available evidence. Now, I don't say that to criticise, I say that as an observation, that if we're going to look at this question seriously, and it is a serious question, then we have to look at all the available evidence that's possible to look at before we just make assumptions or draw conclusions based on what might be uh, some faulty facts. So let's go firstly. The first thing I want to talk about is the goodness of God. And if you've got your Bibles there, I want you to look at Psalm 34, verse 8. John has already quoted this this morning, and this becomes our base text this morning. When we ask the question, or when we talk about the goodness of God, what do we mean by it? What do we mean when we say God is good? Or we talk about the goodness of God. What do we mean by that? So Psalm 34 verse 8 says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. There's no doubt in the psalmist's mind, in, from his perspective, that God is good. Taste and see. And so he's encouraging us to actually try God for ourselves. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, I want to talk about this word good. What does it actually mean in the text? It's a Hebrew word. What does it mean? Well, interestingly, this word good in the Old Testament can be used in a variety of ways. It can refer to practical good. In other words, you do a good thing and it has benefit to other people. So it's practical good. Or the word can also mean good that is beautiful or desirable. And so we might talk about a good-looking person. They're desirable. They are a beautiful person. So good has that connotation. The word good also has the connotation of something that is expensive. So you might talk about good gold. Uh, it's expensive. It's got that kind of uh, idea around it that it's good because it's expensive. But of course, the good that we're concerned with, and the Bible and the Old Testament refers to it, the good we are concerned with also refers to moral good. That which is right, that which is wrong. Now, all of these descriptions of good that I've given you can be applied to God. You can see from the scriptures, in fact, David is saying here in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is desirable. The Lord is someone that you want to know. The Lord is practical. He does good to his creatures. But over and above all of that, God is a good God because he tells us what is right. He tells us what is wrong. He is a moral God. And so it's very important that we, that we understand that when we talk about God and his goodness, it encompasses all those definitions of goodness. Now, you come to the New Testament, and in the New Testament... When Jesus was approached by the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler said to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember what Jesus' response was? Jesus' response was, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, God. That word good that Jesus uses there refers to goodness in action 
that brings about benefit. It's the same as the Old Testament. The idea that someone does something good for you and you benefit from it. But there is a second word in the New Testament that is used for good. We translate both these words as good. But the other word for good in the New Testament refers to something that is essential to the nature or being of God. And so this particular word is describing that goodness is a natural part, it's the essence of who God is. If you drill down into the character of God, this word means that essential to his nature, essential to his character, is the fact that he is good. And it's a part of him. It means that he is ethically good. It means that he is honourable. The word is used to describe that everything God created is good. The word is also used to describe that God's word is good. All of that flows out of the heart of a good God, a God who intrinsically, at the very heart of his being, is a good God. Now, before we move on to the next point, I want you to reflect on this. What the Bible affirms, and we do not have time to look at all the references that talk to us about the fact that God is good. But what the Bible affirms over and over and over again is that God is good. That comes through very strongly. It's affirmed time and time again. That doesn't mean that we're wrong to ask the question. Please don't think this morning as we are listening to this on live stream. Please do not think that I'm saying to you that because the Bible says God is good, God is good. Now, there is truth in that, right? I believe that. I believe what the Bible says. But I am not saying it in such a way this morning that you are wrong to ask the question. If you read the scriptures carefully, you will see that there are many occasions where servants of God are questioning God. The book of Job is a classic example. We will most likely push into that a little bit next week with the problem of pain. So the questions come up in the hearts of people in the scripture. They ask questions. They want to know why X, Y, Z happens when they've been doing what they would perceive to be the right thing before God. And so that's a very real question. But the Bible doesn't take away from the point, the Bible strongly affirms God is good. And as a result of that, what the Bible also affirms is that because God is good, he is to be praised and thanked for who he is and for his goodness. 1 Chronicles 16 verse 34 sums it up. The statement is made in that chapter of the Bible. You can jot it down. 1 Chronicles 16:34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, I want to come to my second point. The second point I want to address, we've talked about the goodness of God. We've just done a brief overview of the goodness of God. What I want to do now is to actually talk about the good God of the Old Testament. And I'll tell you why I'm raising that question. Because often in discussions about the goodness of God, people draw a distinction. They talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Now, this is not a new idea. This has been around now for decades. And people read the Bible... They look at the Old Testament and they see the areas where God judged nations, where he punished nations or he punished individuals. And they say that the God of the Old Testament is nasty, he's mean, he's vindictive, he has no love, he has no compassion. And so they take the God of the Old, of the Old Testament and they say that the God of the New Testament, and particularly as we see him expressed through Jesus, is different. And the God of the Old Testament is not something we want to have anybody to do with. So I want to challenge that question this morning. 
This is where I start to really push back on this issue that the God of the Old Testament is different to the Jesus we meet in the New Testament and the God that he talks about. That actually isn't true because that's not looking at the Old Testament in its complete context. I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 33 and specifically I want you to have a look initially at verse 18. Now to give you the context of this, this is the occasion when Moses has come down from the mountain The people have rebelled and built a golden calf. The golden calf is destroyed and God actually wants to come through and he wants to wipe out the whole nation and start again with Moses. Moses pleads on behalf of the nation that God would not wipe them out. He actually appeals to the character of God. And when we get to verse 18, if you've got your Bibles there, verse 18 in chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses now cries out and says, I pray thee, show me thy glory. Now notice what the request is. He's saying to God, show me your glory. Now, I want to give a context for this. The word glory has two applications. Glory can refer to an outward manifestation of power. Now, think of Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given. It says there was thunder, there was lightning, there was this great demonstration of power as the majesty of God descended on the mountain and the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words were given out. That is God's glory. But it's an outward manifestation of glory. Now, Moses has already seen that. So, listen carefully. When Moses is saying in verse 18, show me thy glory, he's not looking for an outward manifestation of the power of God. He's looking for something deeper. And the reason is because there is a second meaning to the word glory, and that refers to the inner essence of a person. The word glory can describe who the person is in their essential being. That's really important. Note this. It's really important to understand that it's referring to the character of God. What Moses is asking for here is, look, I've seen the outward display, but I want to know who you really are at the core of your being. Show me your glory. Now, notice what God says in verse 19. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Now note the word. The word goodness and glory is used interchangeably here. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. The name is Yahweh and I will be gracious to whom I am gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Now I want you to drop down again to verse 22. Now God uses the word glory. He says, it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. So glory and goodness, Moses asks for God's glory, who you are in your essence, in your being. God says, I will make my goodness, my glory pass before you. So let's go over to chapter 34. Let's see what happens. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage of scripture. This is what happens when God's glory and goodness or goodness is portrayed and declared to Moses. Look at verse 6 of Exodus 34. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Now notice what it's saying about the glory, goodness of God. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth 
who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. What is this telling us about the goodness of God? This God of the Old Testament, who is portrayed by some people as nasty and mean and vindictive, when God makes his goodness, his glory, pass before Moses, what does it say about him? It says, firstly, that he is compassionate. This compassion, the word is, it's a spontaneous act. It's not just a feeling of compassion, but it is acting on that feeling. And it is a spontaneous act that the person is not obligated to give. So when God shows compassion, he is not obligated to show us compassion, but he chooses to. It's a spontaneous response in the heart of God. He is moved by what he sees, and so he acts with compassion. He is described here as being gracious. The grace that is spoken of here is the grace that is given by a superior to an inferior. That's really important. But again... It's something that is freely given. There's no obligation for God to show grace. It's again something that he freely gives. It's an act of generosity. A good way of describing it is his favour. So here God is portrayed as a compassionate God and a God who shows and gives favour. The next description of God is that he is slow to anger. Literally, it means long of face. Or another way of describing it is of long of nose. And it's a really interesting picture because the idea is that God's nose is so long that when he gets angry, it takes a long time for his nose to burn completely. What a great description, isn't it? So God is long of face or long of nose. He is slow to anger. Some of your Bibles may have the description, he is long-suffering. He is patient. The, The interesting thing about this is, When it says that God is long-suffering, it's saying that he's not changeable. It's saying that God delays judgment. Now, think about this. People portray the God of the Old Testament as quick to judge, squashing people, annihilating nations, killing and wiping out people. But the Bible, the Old Testament, actually portrays God as a God who is slow to anger and delays judgment. And that also comes out in the New Testament. God is not quick to judge. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll discover that. You will also discover the times when God has shown his compassion and his grace and his long-suffering to individuals and to nations. The one that comes to mind is when Jonah was told to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah was expecting God to rain hellfire down on the nation and destroy them. God himself said that he would destroy them. What happens when Nineveh repents? The whole city is spared. Why? Because God delays judgment. God is long-suffering. He is not quick to judge. This vision of his glory and goodness goes on and then tells us that he is filled with steadfast love. Or as my Bible says, abounding in loving kindness. Listen to this word. This is a great word. My principal in college used to love this word. The word is kesed. That's the Hebrew word. What does kesed mean? It's a beautiful word. It says something about God. It's God's absolute covenant faithfulness and stickability to his people even when they rebel against him it's born out of his relationship of love with us it means that even though we might be faithless god will always remain faithful to us you see that over and over again through the old testament god 
when he appeals to a rebellious nation says what how can i give you i'm going to come and judge you israel but then he says my heart read the book of hosea my heart is turned over within me how can i give you up why because he's a god of steadfast love he will absolutely stick by us even when we are faithful faithless and he is a god of truth and that word truth has more to do with faithfulness and stability and reliability than anything else it is a way of saying that god is always consistent and faithful to his character and of course if you read verse 7 carefully what you see there this god who is compassionate gracious patient filled with loving kindness who is truthful he is a forgiving god and he is a just god why because he acts consistently with his character the name yahweh means i will be what i will be when you apply that to what is revealed about god here in exodus 34 you will discover that it is saying i will always be true to my character god will act consistently with the essence of who he is in his very being i don't know about you i was going over this yesterday reading and i have to say this just touched my heart in a fresh way folks this is the god that is portrayed and revealed to us in both the old and new testaments he's not a nasty vindictive hateful god he's a god and we'll we'll talk about this more next week but he is a god who has purpose for us the very best he acts from his goodness for our good because he loves us we'll push into that a little bit more but this is the god who is portrayed to us so let me just take one final point let's talk about goodness and the existence of god you might like to go to matthew 19 verse 17 this is the occasion when the rich young ruler came to jesus and jesus responds and says to him why are you asking me about what is good there is only one who is good but if you wish to enter into life keep the commandments Now, the fact is, I want you to listen to this carefully. The fact of the matter is that the very truth that we can ask what is right and wrong, the very fact that we are standing or that I'm standing here talking to you this morning about this topic and you wrestle with this yourself, the very fact that we ask what is right, what is wrong, or that or we declare that is right, that is wrong, the very fact that we do that, I want to argue this morning, is a great argument for the existence of God. You cannot separate the idea of moral goodness and morality from God. You're always going to come up against the God question. So some of you might be agnostic this morning. Some of you might say you're atheist. And you might have bought into this idea, this uh, uh, movement these days called new atheism, which says that you can be an atheist. In other words, you don't have to accept God, but you can still be a moral person. I'm going to challenge that. Richard Dawkins, who is one of the proponents of new atheism, gives three reasons now just follow me on this if you believe that the universe is a product of evolutionary chance you cannot have good or evil people according to evolutionary theory will not evolve into good people because evolutionary theory at the heart of its idea is it's about the survival of the fittest Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. What he's tried to do is because in one very notable occasion, that book was terribly misapplied, 
to uh, by an Enron executive who used Richard Dawkins' book to justify his immoral behaviour with the Enron scam back several years ago. And so Dawkins was horrified about that and he decided, well, I need to actually argue how evolution can produce good people or doing good things. And he uses the word altruism. Now, that's important. He says it's possible to be altruistic. Now, altruistic means a concern for others and it's opposite to your ego. Did you note that? Altruism is a concern for others, that's the dictionary meaning, and it's opposite to the ego. Richard Dawkins, using his words, says there are three reasons evolutionary theory can say why people do good. The first is you do good because the person's a member of your family. In other words, you want to preserve the gene pool. That, is not out, that does not fit into the definition of altruism. Okay? The second reason that he gives is that people do good because society has evolved a system of you reward good behaviour, but you also don't reward bad behaviour. That's not altruistic. That's just a system of payback and revenge. It doesn't fit into the, into the system. And it certainly uh, lends itself towards the ego. The third reason he gives in an evolutionary framework, and he quotes some birds floating, uh, flying around in one part of the world, I've forgotten where it was, but he noticed, or they, the, the uh, people who have studied it have noticed that there are certain birds that will do good things to other birds. But the reason that they've discovered is that that bird wants to prove that it's superior. It's a display of it's better than the other birds because it does good things for them. Folks, that's not altruism either. If we only do good to boost our egos or to show off or to show that we're better than people, all of this defies altruism. So you come back to the issue. And what's the issue? The issue is who defines what's right and wrong? Do you define it? Do I define it? Does the world define it? You see, that's why we get moral dilemmas like the Holocaust. Because the Nazis, as much as we disagree with them and we know that they were wrong, and I'll come to that in a moment, but the Nazis actually believed they were right. They could quote books on why they were right to do what they did. So put that question to somebody, well, who says the Nazis were wrong? Well, we just know they're wrong. And I want to push it back and say, why do you know they're wrong? Because the Nazis believe they're right. Or why do you do something that is inherently good and you know in yourself that that person doing there is doing something that is wrong, but this person is doing what is right. Where does that come from? You have to answer that question. You cannot ignore it. You keep coming back to God. If I'm the authority of what's good and evil, if you're the authority or somebody else is the authority, we are in deep trouble because everybody has a different view on what's right or wrong, particularly these days. What you need is an objective reality outside our own uh, situation that tells us what is right and wrong, you have to come back to God. You cannot avoid the God question. You cannot, and I want to submit this morning, you cannot conclude what is good and evil and explain it without God. No matter how hard you try, you keep coming back to God. I was in a discussion a few years ago with somebody about this and at the end of it, they said, well, the bottom line is that we should all just do the right thing and treat people with responsibility and respect and let's just get on with our lives. And I pushed back and I said, hey, I agree with you, but where does your sense of right and wrong come from? And one of the people involved in the discussion said, oh, this is becoming too philosophical for me. Yes, 
It is a philosophical question, and it's an important question. And I don't want to let you off the hook on that. You have to come back to this question time and time again. Where does your sense of right and wrong come from? Is it you? Because if it's you, we're all in trouble. If it's me, we're all in trouble. Or does it come from somewhere else? And just a quick side note. Romans, because it's interesting... Richard Dawkins makes much of the fact that they put five moral dilemmas to Christians and atheists and there was 97% match that all of them would do the right thing. And he said, there, religion has no influence at all because atheists all agreed what the right thing was to do just as much as Christians did. Well, there's an answer for that because Romans 2 says that God's law is written on the hearts of everybody. Do you know where that sense of right and wrong comes from? It doesn't come from you. It comes from another source. Think about that. I want to close with this. My question to close, do you want to live in a universe where God is not good? Because I don't. I don't want to live in a universe where God is nasty and vindictive. I want to live in a universe where God is good. And the Bible tells me that God is good. I want to close with a quote. This comes from, and we're sort of getting into the spirit of the whole Christmas deal Uh, and Narnia. I want to close with a quote. This is a discussion that takes place between Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and the children when they get into Narnia, and they're talking about Aslan coming back to Narnia, and Mr. Beaver is describing Aslan as this great majestic lion, and Lucy at one point becomes quite scared. She says, oh my, is he safe? And here's the wonderful quote, and notice it. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But look at, listen to this. But he's good. I love that. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Got some time to pop some questions in. We'll be back in a few moments to look at those. God bless. Welcome back. I have two questions. And if another few come through, we will endeavour to answer those. But they're actually the two questions I have through here are very good questions. Uh, The first is, I'll read this out to you. Please explain God's explicit command to Joshua to eliminate the Canaanites as an act of goodness. That's a really good question. And this question comes up a lot when we discuss the goodness of God. So what I would like to do is, if you have got your Bible there, please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20. And I just want to read out a, a couple of specific things that Moses indicated. To the This is uh, Moses' last address to the nation prior to them going into the land, just before his death. So if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 20, and here he is giving the nation the laws of warfare. Now I want you to notice this. So God is talking to the Israelites about how they are to approach a nation when they come against them in war. In verse 10, he says, When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And it shall come about if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then it shall be that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labour and shall serve you. So that if the city enters into a peace arrangement, they are to become the slaves of the Israelites, but they are not to be wiped out. Okay? However, if it does not make peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword, so the men were to be put to death. 
Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city and all its spoil you shall take as booty for yourself and you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Now that's in that situation. What I want you to notice is that when it comes to the Canaanites, because we push into this a little bit further on, and I'm not, I'm not saying, by the way, I'm, I'm just reading out to you, trying to give a bit of a balance here, that not every nation was wiped out by the Israelites, and God draws a distinction between some and between the Canaanites. And I don't want you to think that I'm comfortable with that. The idea that all of these nations that are destroyed in Canaan, women and children as well, that doesn't sit comfortably with me at all. However... I know one answer that was given to this that I read some years ago. The answer was, well, God is all-powerful and he can do what he likes. That's not a satisfying answer to me, okay? So just understand that this is something that I have wrestled with as well. But he goes on and now talks about the nations of Canaan. So he says, this is what, verse 15, Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, that is not in the land of Canaan, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as inheritance, that is in Canaan, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their God, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. So do you notice why God is saying you've got to wipe out all of those nations? Because any of them left alive, the potential was for them to lead the nation, or lead the nation of Israel away from the true worship of God and into the practices that the Canaanites themselves had performed. Now let me put this into perspective. You have to understand, and archaeologists have discovered, that some of the practices that were going on in Canaan under the Canaanite Nations were abominable things, horrible things, child sacrifice, things that we rightly abhor and find uh, disgusting today. I want to also put it in this because the question is asking, how do you relate this to the goodness of God? I want to relate it specifically. If you go back to Genesis, just make sure I get the right uh, chapter here, Genesis chapter 6, I want to take it to the story of Noah. And if you come down to Genesis chapter 6 it talks about the fact that God is looking on the earth and he's decided he's going to judge the earth because the earth has become so corrupt and rebellious against God and it talks here in Genesis chapter 6 that God when he says he's going to judge the world he actually says that my spirit will not strive with mankind forever but it will be 120 years now that's been variously interpreted the most natural way of reading it is that from the time that god pronounces judgment on the world to the enacting of that judgment through the flood and the ark god gives the world 120 years to repent we know and i want to relate it to the goodness of god and one of the characteristics of his goodness is he is slow to anger he is not quick to judge it's not like god says to noah okay, I'm going to flood the world that's happening tomorrow. You better get yourself together and build an ark and save everybody. God gives the world 120 years to repent. You relate that to our own situation in the book of Peter towards the end of the New Testament. What does he say there? That God is long-suffering. He's not quick to punish. He's giving people ample time to repent. You have to look at what happened to the Canaanites in the context of they were given centuries 400 plus years to repent before they were wiped out. Now, 
That does I look. You're going to have questions. You're going to be saying, "Oh, yeah, that's okay to be saying this, that, and the other." Look, I'm not saying that this answers every single thing. I'm just trying to put it into the perspective of look at it from the perspective of one of the characteristics of God's goodness is He is long-suffering and He's not quick to punish. He didn't do it with the Canaanites. He didn't do it in Noah's day, and He doesn't do it with us. It tells us something about this God who is a good God who does not want to inflict punishment. But the time will come when that punishment will fall. And and this comes back to something I read this week. C.S. Lewis put it so well. We we want God to be like Santa Claus. We want God to be benign and aloof up there in heaven. And he just smiles on us. And everything we do is, oh, that's okay, that's good. That's not the God of the Bible. If we're going to talk about God's goodness and we want God to be good, Paul talks about the goodness and the severity of God in Romans 11. J.I. Packer brings that out very clearly. You can't divorce God's goodness from his severity. But I'll say this, that God is not quick when it comes to being severe. Okay, I'll just have to open this up again. There's another question. As I said, these are good questions. And we're not going to necessarily get through them all. So, how do you explain what God did to Lot's wife or what he allowed the devil to do to Job? These are good questions. So, how do you explain what he did to Lot's wife? Did God do that to... I want to ask the question. Read read the Genesis account. Did God do that to Lot's wife or did she do it to herself? Because what did God say? He gave, this is the problem we have. We, this comes back to the idea that God is Santa Claus again. What did God say to Lot and his family when they were leaving Sodom? Don't look back. He warned them not to look back. Now, if God had not done that, if they had been fleeing Sodom and the judgment that was falling upon Sodom and Lot's wife had looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt, you would say, that's unfair. But it's not. God warned them, don't look back. He did it for a reason. Why do we always want to hold God accountable for when we do the wrong thing? Do you hear what I'm saying? God, in his justice and in his compassion, warned them But she chose to ignore that and she suffered consequences. Folks, that is a fact. We're living in a world today that wants to say that there are no consequences to my actions. I can do what I like. I'm free to do as I please. We don't live in that sort of a world. There are consequences for our actions. So I'm going to argue there that God was not unfair. And uh, on the question of Job and why does he allow that to happen? That's a good question. Can you give me maybe a little time to think about that and try and bring it out next week in the sermon? It's not that I'm trying to avoid the question. I just don't want to give something off the top of my head because that is one of the great questions that comes up in the book of Job, isn't it? Why does God even allow Satan to test Job and to put Job through all of that? That's one of the great questions. Uh, We'll come back to that part of the question next week. Now, I think there's one more question that's come through. And it's probably another doozy because these are good questions that you're bringing up and I thank you for them. Okay, if God is good, why are there different religions which add to the complexity of the decision of following Christ? So, in my mind, that actually doesn't detract from the goodness of God. What that actually tells me, what it argues for, is the presence of evil in the world as well. And that evil is driven by the devil. And we know that the devil, one of the things the devil does, he is a master of lies, he is a master of deceit, 
and think about it. Think about in terms of how... Even look at our world today. All religions are accepted and tolerated, but who is not tolerated? And I don't want to create this kind of sense that we're victims, but who is not tolerated these days? The Christian voice is increasingly marginalised and pushed to the outer edges of society. So all the different religions, for me, argues for the fact that there is a devil who is a very present evil in the world who is working to confuse people. But what I can tell you is this. Where does the goodness of God, where is it completely and utterly on demonstration? It's demonstrated at the cross, his goodness and love in sending his son to die for us. And that is sealed by the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm going to take you back to the resurrection and actually encourage you to look at the resurrection. If you want to determine the truth of Christianity and other religions, then answer the question of the death and resurrection of Jesus. When you begin to look at the evidence that supports it, I'm pretty confident, if you look at it in a fair-minded way, I'm pretty confident that you're going to come down on the side of, actually, it's pretty clear God has done all he can to make it clear to the world that Jesus is the only way. Okay, that's it for questions. I'm going to pray and bless you all. May you have a wonderful week and we trust that we'll be able to see some of you back here in person next week and we will advise you through the week. Let's pray. Loving Father, I want to stand before you and pray for everybody who's tuned in here this morning and thank you that you are a good God. Lord, I know that in our humanness, we can't actually answer every single question that we have. But I want to bring us back this morning, Lord, to the fact that you are a good God, that you created this universe, and when you created it, it was good. And you plan and purpose for us good, and you love us. And yes, we go through difficult times, and yes, there is suffering in our world. And Lord, these are painful, painful things to bear. But Lord, I pray this morning that our confidence and faith in you will be lifted in your goodness that it will be raised up and that we will have a new confidence and a new sense that you are a good God and a God who can be trusted, a God of compassion, a God of steadfast love, a God who is long-suffering, a God of truth, a God of grace, a God of faithfulness. Thank you for who you are, Father. May we draw near to you in this coming week and may we know your blessing on us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hope to see you back next week.